0: At the end of my notes, I was going to share it to close, but I'm going to share it right now because it's so powerful. This statement is is from the book Upward Look. It's a devotional by Ellen G. White. and She says, If Satan stands between the soul and Jesus Christ, then the love and acceptance and pardon of Christ are eclipsed. Man will be constantly striving to prepare a robe of righteousness to cover his deformity and sin. When Christ wants him to come to him just as he is and believe in Him as His personal Savior. In His tender love, a forgiving Father brings forth His best robe in which to array His returning child. So this was my experience. I was constantly seeking to prepare a robe of righteousness to cover my deformity and sin. I was constantly trying to be good or to do good or somehow uh, find a way to to. To persuade God to accept me and to love me and to forgive me. That was my experience. Until I came to a place where I realized there was absolutely nothing I could do. I mean, I was lost, lost, lost. I was at the very bottom. And all I could do was come to Jesus just the way I was. And accept Him as my personal Savior. And when I did that, when I had nothing to give but everything to receive, my heart changed, my life changed, everything changed. That's the experience that Paul is speaking into to the church in Galatia. They had this experience where everything changed. But what happened was, in time, somehow this got undermined. Primarily it was through a group of people that were Judaizers or trying to get the Galatian Christians to go back to this way of dealing with God that was very much a part of the Jewish faith up until this time, up until Jesus came. And so Paul is speaking into this. And one of the big issues that these Galatian Christians have and the Judaizers have is the issue of the law and the covenant, the old covenant specifically, or the law of God and how it relates to the old covenant. And so Paul is speaking into that in these verses. Now, we're going to divide this section into three parts. The first section is verses 15 to 18, which deals primarily with God's changeless promises. The second section, verses 20, 19 to 25, are describing the purpose of the law. What is the law for? And the last section, verses 26 to 29, discusses what it means to be sons and daughters of God, heirs of the kingdom of God. So with this in mind, let's just look at these first verses here, Galatians three fifteen to 18. Brothers and sisters, let me take an example from everyday life. Just as no one can set aside or add to a human covenant or will that has been fully established, so it is the case with this. The promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. Scripture does not say to his seeds, uh, meaning many people, but to your seed, meaning one person, which is Christ. What I mean is this. The law introduced 430 years later does not set aside the covenant previously established by God and thus do away with the promise. For if the inheritance depends on the law, then it, is no, long, it no longer depends on the promise. But God, in his grace, gave it to Abraham through a promise. All right, what is this Bible, what are the Bible verses here trying to prove? Well, first, verse 15 is taking this covenant, or will, in some translations, the word is will. It's taking this, and it's applying it to the way that it was used in Paul's time as a method of explaining God's promise to man. So according to Greek culture, according to, Greek custom, according to Paul's day, once a covenant or a will was made and it was confirmed or ratified, it couldn't be changed. You write out a will, it's ratified, for example, if someone has a will and testament about their life and they die, that will is ratified by their death and that will or or testament goes into effect. You might be the recipients of a will that someone has written out and you're mentioned in that will. Well, we are the recipients of the will of Jesus Christ. And the will of Jesus Christ that he's written out, the, 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 the will of God for us that is to be carried out at Christ's death, is that we would inherit the gift of salvation. Every single human being has been written into that will. Now, of course, you can receive a will and refuse to accept it. You can actually be written into a will. Let's just say you have an uncle or an aunt or someone that's in your family and they write out a will and they name you as the recipient of one million dollars. And that person dies. And when they die, the lawyer comes to you, writes you a letter, and says, Hey, you have just received a million dollars from your uncle or your aunt. And you can say, Well, I don't want it. And if that that ever happens to you, give me a call. We can work something out. Um, You can say, I don't want it. But the point is, is that you've been written into the will. And this is where it becomes really significant. The gospel has written every human being on planet Earth into the will and testament of Jesus Christ. Everyone's been written into that. And that will and testament was sealed when Jesus Christ died. So it can't be changed. That's our situation right now in Christ. That will and testament has been sealed by the blood of Christ. It's been ratified and it can't be changed. This is the point that Paul is trying to make. That through your offspring... Now, Paul here is talking about... The promise versus the law. The promise was made to Abraham in Genesis 22 and verse 18. That through his offspring, all nations of the earth would be blessed. That was the promise that was made before God gave the law on Sinai, before that covenant came on Sinai, God gave this promise to Abraham. Through your seed, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. And I've read that so many times and thought to myself, wow, yeah, Abraham's seed, all the generations that followed Abraham, it was through them that, you know, all the nations would be blessed because God was going to give them the law, give them the truth, and give them, you know, his understanding of who he is through the sanctuary, and they could learn about God. But that's not really what the verse is saying. The verse here is talking about seed singular. Now this may not make sense to our, our Western way of thinking, our Western mindset, but in the Jewish concept, in the Jewish way of thinking, seed had a corporate significance. So just like the word Adam has a collective significance, it includes the whole human race. So Paul's telling us in Galatians that the word seed here is a corporate significance. It affects the whole human race because that seed is one person, not many people. It is one person, Jesus Christ. And he really makes this clear when, when we get to verse 16 of Galatians 3. Scripture does not say, and to seeds, meaning many people, but and to your seed, meaning one person who is Christ. It is through Christ, it is through your seed, Abraham, that all the nations will be blessed. They'll be blessed through your seed, which is Jesus. Because Jesus has become, in a sense, the second Adam. When Adam sinned in the garden, originally, all of us came under condemnation because we all are his seed. We all spring from that first Adam. So Jesus came to this earth and he became the second Adam. That's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 45, for example. So it is written, the first Adam became a living being, the last Adam a life-giving spirit. So... Paul is basically saying everything that we received in the first Adam is now undone in the second Adam. All the condemnation we receive in the first Adam, all the, that we inherit from, from the first Adam, is now undone in the second Adam. Jesus Christ has now lived a perfect life, which the first Adam failed to live and carry on to us. He's died a substitutionary death, which the first Adam couldn't do in order to take care of the wages of sin. But Christ did, and he's had, passed that on to us. So everything that we received negatively in the first Adam, we now receive positively in the second Adam, and we're left with a choice. Do we want to receive the will and testament of Jesus, or do we want to stay in the same situation of the first Adam and just receive from him all of the negative? It's up to us to choose. God is not going to force his will and testament on us, but it is for us to have. We're written in. We're part of it. We're not left out. We're not excluded. Which I love that. So in verse 17 then of chapter 3, Paul tells the Galatians that the promise that God made to Abraham is that in this seed of Abraham, which is Christ, the whole world will be blessed. So in verse 17 he's saying this promise could not be annulled. It could not be changed. It could not be done away with through the law that was given 430 years later. After God had made the promise to Abraham. He says, what I mean is this. The law introduced 432 years later, verse 17, does not set aside the covenant previously established by God and thus do away with the promise. So, so what Paul is saying here basically is the law that was given through Moses did not change the promise in any way. If we look at salvation through the law and salvation through grace, which is through the promise of God, as shown in our last two studies, if we look at it that way, there are two opposite ways of salvation that are being explained here. One is through promise and one is through law. One is through gift and one is through obedience. Our works. So the two systems can never actually be mixed together. Okay, The law says, thou shalt and thou shalt not in order to be saved. The promise of God says, I shall save you because of the fact that you are a sinner and you cannot save yourself by your law-keeping. So it's one or the other. Paul is basically saying there's two systems here of salvation that are being laid out. One of them is promise, one of them is law. The law saves us by our performance, by our good deeds, and we have to be perfect in order to be saved by those good deeds. The promise of God saves us through God's work in Christ. It makes... Nothing we do meritorious. We can't contribute to that perfect salvation. We simply receive it by faith. Those are the two systems that God is giving to us. Those are the two systems that Paul here is explaining. So salvation through the law is a religion that's based on human salvation, human religion. And all non-Christian religions are based on man's performance. And unfortunately, even some Christian religions are based on man's performance. Because we get confused here. The Galatians were confused here. They were struggling with this. They weren't understanding this. So this is unlike God's way of saving mankind, which is through grace. Grace is a gift. It's through a promise. And it's entirely gifted to mankind in Jesus Christ. And Paul is saying that when the law came along 430 years later at Mount Sinai, after Abraham was given this promise, it does not change the way that God saves us. So the ultimate question here that we have to ask is, what was it all about then? Why did God give the law? Paul in verse 14 says, For if the inheritance depends on the law, then it is no longer depends on the promise. But if God, in his grace, gave it to Abraham through promise, then how is it that we're saved? Through law or through promise? See, the moment we try to add the law as a requirement of salvation, it ceases to be a promise. It now becomes obedience by our works. But God gave Abraham the promise of salvation as, as a will or a testament which the law, given 430 years later, could not change her at all. So, so if mankind is saved entirely by promise, the promise of God made to Abraham, then why did God give the law 433 years later? Did God come to Moses and say, uh, by the way, Moses, I did make a promise to Abraham 400 years ago, but... I left something else, and I need to add that right now. I need to add the law to that promise that I gave because it's really important that you're saved through obeying the law. There's no way I can save you without you obeying the law. Is that, is that the point? No, God never told Moses he was adding an extra requirement to his promise for salvation. But the question remains, then, why did God give the law? Why was it added? And this is a big question because even within our church history, we've debated the law in Galatians. We had a big fracas about it in 1888, and some of the brethren were trying to say, the law in Galatians can't be the moral law because the moral law is part of the covenant, part of the way we're saved, and so it must be the ceremonial law that was added 430 years, 30 years later. The ceremonial law was the one that was added, and Paul is saying, no, it's the moral law that he's talking about here. And the reason why it's the moral law is because we're talking about how we're saved, the method of salvation. We are talking about whether our salvation comes through grace, whether it comes through God's saving power, or whether it comes through our obedience to the moral law. And this conflict that we had in our church in 1888 divided us. It divided the brethren, and it almost split the church. That conflict has continued on in some areas, in some quarters, because human nature naturally tends toward, as we've seen in every religion in the world, towards some kind of works based religion. That's our natural tendency. It's very difficult for us, and it's very difficult for human nature just to accept God's promise and accept the gift of salvation without contributing anything. It's very difficult for us to do that. But if we would do that, if we would actually say that we are saved completely and totally by grace, it would impact the heart and the life in such a way that we would want to live for God as we never have before. And that's the point of the gospel. We can't undermine grace, and we can't undermine the gospel, and we can't change the gospel because if we do that, it undermines what the gospel produces in the life. When we undermine the gospel, we undermine what it produces, and we undermine what it produces, we are not changed. Legalism and being saved by our works makes people very critical, very judgmental, very negative, very hard on other people. You've got to come up to the standard because I've got to come up to the standard because everyone's got to come up to the standard in order to be saved. Grace does exactly the opposite. It actually fulfills the law in our hearts because when we're saved by grace and we realize that it's totally a gift of God, it transforms the way we treat other people. And the way we treat other people and the way we relate to God is actually the fulfilling of the law. Love comes out of our hearts because we remember what wretched, decrepit, selfish individuals we are. And we realize, wow, in all my selfishness and all my wretchedness, I'm saved by the grace of God. And it causes us to be gracious toward other people. Gracious like you've never experienced in your life. The more you take in the grace of God, the more gracious it causes you to become to other people. And you find yourself, when you are confronted with this grace, you find yourself doing things and thinking things toward other people that's totally different. You find yourself surprising yourself. And you see other people that blow you away in the way they relate and interact with other people. And that is the testimony of God's grace that is so powerful and so beautiful. And that's what Paul here is wanting to bring back to the Galatians. So why was the law given at all, Paul says? It was added because of transgressions. We're going now into Galatians chapter three, nineteen to 25, the second section. And the question we're asking, answering here is, why was the law given then? It was added because of transgressions until the seed to whom the promise referred to had come. The law was given through the angels and entrusted to a mediator. A mediator, however, implies more than one party, but God is one. Is the law, therefore, opposed to the promises of God? Absolutely not. For if a law had been given that could impart life, then righteousness would certainly have come by the law. But the Scripture has locked up everything under the control of sin so that what was promised, being given through faith in Jesus Christ, might be given to those who believe. Before the coming of this faith, we were held in custody under the law. We were locked up until the faith that was to come would be revealed. So the law was our guardian until Christ came. It was our schoolmaster until Christ came that we might be justified by faith. And now that faith, this faith has come, we are no longer under the guardian. Now, what Paul is saying here is a little bit difficult. It is challenging to understand this. So let's try to break it down and make it simpler. First, he's asking the question... What purpose, then, does the law serve? Why did God give the law 430 years after he promised salvation to Abraham as a gift? Now, the answer is, according to Paul, it was added because of transgression. I want you to notice something here. He is using a specific word for sin. Because in the Bible, there are about 12 different words for sin, and they can all be broken down to three basic words. Sin, transgression, and iniquity. Sin, that word means Falling short of the mark, falling short of the mark, falling short of the glory of God. That's found in uh, Romans chapter 323, for all of sin and come short of the glory of God. Iniquity, that word, primarily has to do with our condition. We are in iniquity because it's our natural bent towards sin. It's like selfishness. Uh, David talks about being shapen in iniquity. Um, We all, we like sheep, have gone astray, Isaiah says. Uh, We've turned everyone our own way, and the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. Our natural inclination, our selfishness, our self-will was laid upon Christ. And he battled with that self-will, and he resisted that self-will, and he surrendered it to God and always did God's will. So iniquity is like our natural bent. Um, We're born that way. David says, for example, um, Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me, or Conceived in iniquity is another way it's uh, stated in, in the King James. Transgression, however, simply means a deliberate violation of the law. It's not just falling short of the mark. It's not just our national inclination. It's a deliberate violation of the law. So from Adam all the way down to Moses, the human race was sinning or deliberately violating what they knew was right. And this is why the law was given. The law was given not to solve our sin problem. It, was made, it made our sin problem worse. The law was given to convince us that we deserve nothing but death. I know that sounds kind of strange. It's kind of hard in, in a way because why would God need to do that with us? Well, let's continue on a little bit further here. Paul says, A mediator, however, implies more than one party, but, party, but God is, is one. Now, this is difficult, but let's just follow Paul's reasoning here. We need to understand what Paul is saying. See, the word covenant can be divided into two ways or two understandings. One understanding of covenant is um, to describe an agreement between two people, an agreement or a contract. So you sign a contract, and you sign on the dotted line. If you're buying a house, for example, you might sign a contract or a covenant with the bank, and they agree to give you you know, X amount of dollars, and you agree to pay the money back. That's an agreement. That's one way you can understand a covenant. But another way to understand a covenant is the way we've described it, a will and a testament. It has very little to do with the recipient, recipients. They don't sign anything. The person that signs the will or the covenant in the second understanding is the person that decides what they're going to do with whatever they have. They're signing a will and they're saying, this is what I'm going to do when I die. This is what's going to happen to my money, for example. So there's no real obligation on the part of the recipients except to receive that will or that testament or that covenant. That's the meaning that Paul is dealing with here. But he's saying there's this, there's this other meaning that's found in the Bible that actually applies to what took place 430 years after the promise or the first will was made to Abraham. And that Agreement that covenant was made at Sinai. God appeared, gave them a revelation of the law, and before he could say another word, all the people said to Moses, all the Lord has said we will do and be obedient. And a covenant was formed. Animals were sacrificed, and the blood testified to that covenant. Now, why did God enter into that covenant with his people at Sinai? Why was it ratified by the blood of animals? Why did God even engage in such a thing if he had already made a promise to Abraham that was one-sided? Why did he engage in a covenant that was two-sided 430 years later? This is the question that Paul is asking. and This is a question that we need to ask. The reason why God did that was not necessarily intentional. Now, what I mean by that is It wasn't necessarily God's purpose for all the people to respond the way that they did. When the law was revealed, and when the law is revealed to you, you today have two ways of responding. The one way is to say, wow, the law, that's true, that's right. I should be that kind of person. I should be loving to other people. I should be loving to God. I should keep the Sabbath. I should do all of those things, and I'm going to do it. Because God is telling me I should be doing that, and that's what I'm going to do. So I'm making a New Year's resolution. I am going to do, I'm going to start keeping the Sabbath. I'm going to start doing the things that God wants me to do. By George, I'm going to do that. Sorry, George. That's, I'm going to do that, by golly. That's what I'm going to do, right? And that's what the children did at Sinai. The children of Israel did at Sinai. And how long did that last? How long did their news resolution last? Till about February, Right? Moses was in the mount for 40 days. So it lasted till about the middle of February. till about, you know, um, uh, what's February 14 again? Valentine's Day. Valentine's Day. It lasted about Valentine's Day, right? <laughs> and then it went, and they failed. And you might say, well, then why would God enter into that covenant with them? Well, I don't know that it was God's intention for the people to answer the way they did. But God said, okay, if they're going to answer that way, let's see how they do. And let's see if, with them carrying out their will and their ways, if we can't work this out to help them to realize that it's absolutely impossible for them to actually be obedient to me by their power. So God allows it to happen. They fall on their face. So that they can see that there's no way that they can possibly keep this law that has been delivered to them. And hopefully they can be led back to the original promise or agreement that God made with them. And that is, I'm going to bless you through the seed, Jesus Christ. He's going to obey perfectly. He's going to make the sacrifice. And you are to trust in him. Does that make sense? This is what Paul is saying to the Galatians. He's saying, listen. He's saying the reason the law was given is to help you to realize how wretched you are. To help you to realize there's no way you can do this. See, what happens with humanity is when we lose sight of the law of God, we start thinking that we're good people. Ask an atheist about Christianity. They're a bunch of hypocrites. I live a better life than they do. We start thinking outside of the standard of righteousness. We start thinking that we're good people. The thing that God has to convince us of sometimes is how wretched and sinful we really are. A lot of times, the same thing happens in church, in family. We start focusing on the faults of other people who are much worse than us, and we have a tendency to rely upon the fact that we're better than other people to recommend us to God or to think that we're Christians and we're good people. And the law has to come, and it has to do a deeper work in us. I don't care how wretched and bad people are around you. I don't care how selfish or unkind they are, I don't care what their character is, et cetera, et cetera. you are a sinner in complete need of the grace of God in and of yourself. You will never be able to, to, to live up to the standard of God's law and God's righteousness without complete dependence on the grace of Jesus Christ. So get your eyes off other people and get your focus on Jesus and realize your need of His grace. For salvation that's what paul is basically saying to the galatians there's no way you're going to make it if you fall into the system of depending on your obedience you're not even going to come close you're going to fall flat on your face just like they did in the old covenant times so the law therefore is not opposed to the promises of god get this because we're reading these these verses verses 21 to 22 now The law is not opposed to the promises of God. Absolutely not. If the law had been given that could impart life, then righteousness would have certainly come by the law. But the scripture has locked up everything under the control of sin. The reason why God gives the law is to convict us of how sinful we are. I like to use this illustration. It's kind of like uh, I don't know if you've ever gone shopping when you're hungry. You ever go to the store when you're hungry? And, you, and everything ends up in the cart. <laughs> like, I'll take some of that, and I'll take some of that, and I'll take some of that, and I'll take some of that. Oh. have you ever gone shopping when you're full? Like, you're just full, like, to the brim. And you go into the store, and you're like, oh, nothing looks good. I don't even know what I want to get. You know, there's not, like, it's a completely different mindset. There, there are times, over and over again, this happens to me, and I'm just going to make a confession tonight since, um, since, Today, since Sandy brought up um, soup supper. For some reason, Fridays, like my wife gets home late Thursday night and I try to wait up for her. So usually we are awake until 10 30 or so. And then my daughter sometimes comes in and we start having a conversation at 11 o'clock or so. And we're up late. So we get up late. So Fridays, consistently we wake up late in the morning. And so we have a late breakfast. And because we have a late breakfast, we have a late lunch. So we eat around 3 or 3.30. And I come to soup supper and I'm like, I just ate. I'm just not hungry. You know, I'm just not hungry. And my wife will sometimes say, don't eat lunch so you can be hungry for soup supper. And I'm like, yeah, then I'm going to pig out. you know. And there's not going to be any food left for anyone else. I'm no, thank you. So that's, that is the experience that Paul is, in a sense, talking about here with the law. The reason why the law was added was to help us to be hungry for grace. To be hungry for grace. And if you keep filling yourself with your own works, you're going to think that you're satisfied and that you're not hungry for grace. So the law comes to empty you of your self-righteousness. The law comes to convict you that you have nothing, that your stomach is empty, that you are a starving human being that there's no spiritual food inside you so that you can just say, give me some of that grace. I'll take a bowl of that super grace and I'll take a bowl of that super grace and I'll take a bowl of that super grace and I'll take that grace of bread and I'll take all that grace of carrot uh, crackers and I'll take, yeah, I'll take the carrots too. I'll take everything because I am starving for grace. That's the point that Paul is making. That's why God enacted, followed through with this covenant at Mount Sinai. To help the people realize. Forty days later, they're dancing around a calf. Forty days earlier, they had said, all the Lord has said we will do it. Now they're dancing around a calf because we were absolutely 100% lost without Jesus. And think about it. These guys at Sinai had heard the voice of God. They'd seen the lightning and the thunder. God just led them through the Red Sea. He just performed 10 miracles to get them out of Egypt, including the blood of the Lamb. If anyone had evidence that there was a God in heaven whom they should believe and follow, it was them. And they fell flat on their face, flat on their face. We're in the same boat, Seventh-day Adventists here at Fall Creek Church. We're in the same boat. We have all the evidence, we have all the truth, we have all the light, but we are lost, lost, lost without the grace of God. And you know that. We know that. We must be awakened to that, and so the law comes, and the law tells us that we're transgressors, that, that we are lost. Sin, in a sense, tries to deceive us. It comes to us and tells us that we're not that bad, that if we build up our willpower, we can do something that, we can, that can cause us to be saved. Sin wants us to look God eye, and, eye to eye and say, uh, God, you give us a rule, and we'll keep it. And in turn, you'll give us life. Sin deceives us in that way. But when we realize what the law demands in human nature, perfect obedience in thought, in word... Indeed, then we realize that by the works of the law, no one can be justified before God. And then we're ready for the supper of grace. So God gave us the law to convince the human race that we are prisoners of sin and that we need a Savior. Now that's what it means to use the law lawfully. The law is good. It's great if a man uses it lawfully because the law convicts us of sin. Paul says, I I wouldn't have known that I was coveting except the law said, thou shalt not covet. And where does coveting take place? In our actions or in our thoughts? In our thoughts. No one knows that you're coveting that thing that you're coveting but God. So the law comes to convict us and to show us that we're sinners. But don't be in despair over that. God understands that we cannot perfectly obey the law. God understands that we cannot save ourselves. That's why we have grace. That's why we have the gospel. That's why we have salvation. And the more we we are convicted of our sin and our selfishness, and the more we turn to that grace, the more it transforms us and causes us to be graceful toward others. And that's the purpose. That's the fruit. That's the reason why the gospel impacts our lives and changes us. So... One thing that we see in this verse is it talks about before the coming of this faith. And sometimes we think about this faith as our faith. But I really want to bring a point out here that's important. Because there's kind of a word missing in this statement in some translations that gives a wrong meaning. The word faith in the original is preceded by the definite article the faith or this faith. Paul is really saying before the coming of the faith or before the faith came. Which gives us a completely different meaning here than it does without the definite article because Paul is not really discussing here the believer's faith. He's discussing the faith, as in the source or basis of our faith, which is Jesus Christ. Before the faith came, we were shut up into this law. But now the faith has come. Now Messiah has come, the faith, Jesus, the faithful one. The one who has accomplished the very task that we needed. Now that he has come, we're liberated from the condemnation of the law. We're liberated from this way of relating to God. We're liberated from trying to earn God's favor by our works, by depending on our righteousness. We're liberated from what we have the faith. We have the faith. Before the coming of this faith, we were held in custody under the law, locked up until the faith came, until the faith that was to come would be revealed. So the law condemns this whole human race, keeps us in prison, keeps us in death until Christ comes. And then Christ comes and he delivers us from this condemnation, from the from the legalism. He delivers us from this law because he himself becomes the righteousness of God for us in our behalf. So the law was our tutor, our guardian, to lead us to Christ until Christ should come and we should be justified by the faith. Now that this faith, Jesus Christ, has come, we are no longer under our guardian. So from Adam to Christ, salvation was based on this promise. Abraham was saved by the promise. Noah was saved by the promise. You and I are saved by the promise. The law doesn't save us, the law simply convinces us that we're sinners. It tells us that we're falling short. The law makes our sins a legal offense which is what the word transgression means, which is impossible for us to make amends for. When you get pulled over for a speeding ticket, I'm speaking to someone specifically here this morning, but I won't look at them. When you get pulled over for a speeding ticket, you make amends by writing a check. Maybe your parents write a check and sending it in to make a payment for that speeding ticket. You've just been reconciled with, with that with that uh, police officer and with the court. You've been reconciled by making amends. When you get pulled over for transgressing the law of God, you have no way of making amends. You can't write a check. You can't do something to make yourself right with the court, with the justice system. You need someone else to do that for you. And that's where Jesus comes in. Jesus steps in and he makes the amends. He pays the price. He takes care of that ticket. Not only that... But when you get a speeding ticket and you make amends, it now goes on your record. And it now affects your insurance, perhaps, depending on what kind of insurance you have. They might give you one speeding ticket, you know, as a free. And then the second one, you're in trouble. But with Jesus, guess what? The record is sponged, It's gone. It's eradicated. It's blotted out. You are justified. You stand just as if you'd never sinned with Jesus. The whole process of this world and the way it operates is completely contrary to the way the gospel operates. And every single day of every single week, we are confronted with the principles of this world that tell us that if you want to get forgiven and reconciled from that ticket, you need to pay a price. And it's going to be on your record for three years, and then it's going to come off. And every single week of every single month, of every single year, God brings us into fellowship with him, Sabbath, to remind us that you know the way the world works, you know the way things happen in the court system, you know the way things happen when you get a speeding ticket. Well, that's not the way I work. I don't work that way. So even though you've been working in the world and doing your thing day after day after day, I want you to take a break. I want you to come and hang out with me and I want to remind you of the way my system works because I don't want you to become changed into thinking the way the world thinks and relating to me that way i need to remind you and so sabbath after sabbath week after week we need to be reminded of this truth because the world is operating on a works-based system that's why most religions are worldly based that's where they come from that's where they originate from they they start from a worldly basis only christianity true christianity comes from a completely different basis and so God reminds us every week, every week, every week, I've got to remind you, I've got to remind you, this is the way it works, this is the way it operates. And when you embrace that grace, you leave God's presence, having a completely different mindset toward other people and toward yourself. You relate differently to people. You act differently toward people. And it shocks them. They don't expect it. They're amazed. And they begin to be affected and infected by this grace of God, and it changes them. It impacts them, and you start to see things changing in their lives, and that's the operation that Paul is bringing the Galatians back to. That's what he's, he's doing with them, and that's what he, he himself has been infected by this grace, and he is seeking to reinfect them with this grace, to cause them to live in this way that is so powerful. So, in this context, Christ came and perfectly satisfied the demands of the law by his life and his death. And when Christ came and perfectly met the demands of the law by his doing and the justice of the law by his dying, he redeemed the whole human race, and every single person is written in that will of redemption. The emancipation papers of the race have been signed by Jesus Christ in his blood. The Emancipation Proclamation was a proclamation that went forth in 1863, and it was a a, a proclamation that that involved every slave in the seceding states of the United States, those states that were seceding from the United States. They were all set free by this proclamation. This was a proclamation that was made by Abraham Lincoln, signed by Abraham Lincoln, that had nothing to do with the slaves themselves doing something to earn this emancipation. The only thing that was necessary was for them to accept the proclamation that had been made. But in order for them to accept it, what had to happen? Abraham Lincoln, in his office in Washington, D.C., signed an Emancipation Mason proclamation, and it would affect a slave, let's say, living in Tennessee. What had to happen in order for that slave living in Tennessee in a little shack in the back of this great mansion, working and slaving away day and night, what would have to happen for that slave in Tennessee to be set free from that proclamation, by that proclamation? Someone had to tell him. Someone had. You have been set free. I have? Yes. Did someone pay for me? No. It's a proclamation signed by the president. You're free. That's our job. That's why we're on planet Earth. That's why we're here. Christ has signed the emancipation papers of the entire race. You have been set free. You are free from the condemnation and the guilt of sin. Not only you, but every person you know. Your mother, your father, your sister, your brother, your neighbor, your friend, every single person on planet Earth has been set free. They no longer have to live under the condemnation of this law. And the way they're going to know this is whether they live under your condemnation. And the only way they're not going to live under your condemnation is if you accept the grace of God for yourself. If you don't, they will live under your condemnation. Natural given. It's a given. Don't even try to fool yourself. It's a given. Unless you have the grace of God, you will naturally tend to condemn other people that you come in contact with for whatever it is they're doing that's falling short of God's glory. The only way we can actually proclaim this is to realize that we ourselves have been set free. And the only way that can happen is if we imbibe, if we take in the grace of God. And then we go forth and we proclaim it to others. And we do it in a way that is so powerful. The Holy Spirit works, works, works in the lives and hearts of other people. And that's what God has called us to as a church and as individuals. And you have a people. You have a sphere. You have an influence. God has given you a ministry of reconciliation. And there are people in your lives. I know it. I I, I sense it. I know it in my life. There are people that God wants to use you to impact with this grace. And the more you do that, the more that grace becomes a reality to you. You become more forgiven as you forgive others. Because it becomes real in your own life and heart. So Paul is concluding this section by basically saying, now the faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. We are free. We're not under this law of doing certain things, we are under this law of love. It doesn't mean that the law of love is a contradiction to the law of Ten Commandments, but it means that we are obedient by grace, and therefore our living out of this law of love is a completely different motive than it was before. Before we're doing it to earn God's favor, to earn salvation. Now we're doing it because we are saved and because we have received the gift. Before we have a certain standard that we're putting on other people, and we're treating them a certain way until they come up to the standard. Now we are free to treat people with grace, irregardless of whether they're coming up to that standard. And that motivates them in a different way as it motivated us in a different way to live for God. And it's beautiful and it's powerful. In this context, then, Paul says, and these are our last verses, so in Christ Jesus you are children of God through faith. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. You are all one in Christ. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. We put on Jesus. When people see us, they see Jesus. When people look at us, they look at Jesus. When you look at me, you see a suit and a tie. But that's just this common garb. What you really need to see is Jesus Christ. And what other people want to see in us is Jesus Christ. People are looking for Jesus. The wise men. They came to Jerusalem, to the church, looking for Jesus. You remember the story, right? The Christmas story. We just had it. They came to Jerusalem looking for Jesus. What did they find? They found a bunch of selfish people who were all caught up in their religion and in their position. Herod was caught up in his position, the religious leaders were caught up in their religion. They knew prophecy. Oh, they knew prophecy. Okay, Herod said to the, to the, to the, to the Pharisees, tell me where the Christ is going to be born. Oh, in Bethlehem. We got the prophecies down. In Bethlehem, that's where he's going to be born. Right? And then Herod says to the wise men, to the Magi, okay, you go find Jesus. And when you find him, let, let me know so I can come and worship him too. You're not going to worship Jesus if you're not looking for him yourself. And of course, we know Herod wasn't really looking to worship Christ. He was looking to destroy him. The Magi came to Jerusalem, the church, looking for Jesus. They found prophecy. They found jealousy. They found power, greed, but they didn't find Jesus. They had to go to a stable to find Jesus. In the lowly parts of the earth, in those who are outcasts, that's where they found Jesus. And that's where God today is manifesting himself, unfortunately. Not so much in the church, but in these outcast places on planet earth that's where we're seeing Jesus we're experiencing Christ God help us it's a wonderful statement though isn't it Jesus Christ calls us to be sons and daughters to break down all the barriers of, of Jew and Gentile all the barriers of male and female all the barriers of, of slave and free all the barriers that we have are broken down In Jesus Christ. We don't look at people according to their background or according to their status or according to their color or their race or their... We look at people in Christ. That's how we see people, in Christ. So let's just close this up with one thought. It's the one that I shared with you earlier, but I want to share it again. If Satan stands between the soul and Jesus... Then the love and acceptance and pardon of Christ are eclipsed. Man will be constantly striving to prepare a robe of righteousness to cover his deformity and sin. When Christ wants him to come to him just as he is and believe in him as his personal Savior, his tender love, a forgiving father, brings forth his best robe in which to array his returning child. Hi, Maisley. I can't think of a better picture to close our sermon on than that one. God longs to clothe us with his righteousness. We try to cover our deformity with our own works. It's not going to work. It never has and it never will. But when we have the gift of grace in Jesus Christ, when we have the faith of Jesus, then we will be clothed with the love of Christ, and that love will go out to other people, even naturally. We will tend to put other people before us and to do whatever we can to touch them and reach them for heaven, to be the witnesses that God wants us to be. Isn't that what you want in your own personal experience? If you desire to have that experience this morning, raise your hands with me. Amen. God sees every hand. Praise God. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, I just want to thank you this morning for the gift of grace. The one and only means of salvation found in Jesus Christ. I want to thank you for making us hungry. Sometimes the law overwhelms us and sometimes we feel as though there's no hope for us. But, Father, help us to remember that that law, that righteous standard, is so overwhelming because it tutors us, it directs us, it leads us to the Savior, where we find satisfaction for that hunger, where we find grace filling our empty stomachs and our empty hearts. Continue to lead us, Father, to the source of our salvation, to Jesus and his grace. And through us, allow us to be free from every false standard of righteousness and works to lead others to that fountain, to that banquet of grace, that they can be filled, that their hearts can be filled, that their bellies can be filled. We pray and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.